As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman. No Stu Mandel today, but we have a very, very big guest for us. Um, it's actually my favorite co-worker at Box. Um, it is Chris Peterson. People will remember him from his days as the Boise State coach and as the Washington coach. Um, and now he's a big TV star. So <laughs> thanks for joining us on The Audible. Thanks for having me. Wait, are they not remembering me from my first head coaching gig? at the with the uc davis jv aggie team that's where I thought uh, most of my notoriety came from well it's actually from that all that time you spent at pit what i didn't realize was i have on a just a regular pit t-shirt and you lit up when you saw it because there was one year that you were a pit panther offensive coordinator well i wasn't an offensive coordinator i was quarterback coach um yeah. Oh my gosh. When we go back to the UC Davis days and then I left there to go to Pitt, when I why I light up in those situations, because I think those might have been some of my days where I probably learned the most about coaching. I think I've learned I've always learned, you know, I probably learned the second most since I've stepped away three years ago. But those early days, you know, of just thinking you know what coaching's about and how to coach and were just so eye-opening to me and I learned so many things and so when I saw your picture I did light up I um so I, I at some point I want to get to that because I think it's fascinating I feel like <laughs> I learn a ton about football sitting next to you in the green room especially to watch how kind of your mind works and I feel like how you're in your own way reverse engineering what's happened on the field um and but it's it's fascinating because now you have this really interesting perspective having been in the middle of it i feel like you know i'll say this i know you probably wouldn't but i feel like you were probably about as self-aware as anybody who was in big time coaching and to know what it was like to have that reality as running a program at a high level and knowing how you know knowing your strengths and weaknesses and it is a highly competitive space drawn by highly competitive people so I do want to get into what you've learned since you've gotten away, because now you've become this great resource for 
other coaches, not just in football, not just certainly in college football, but I, I do feel like that's given you a different perspective. So what's been the biggest things you've learned since you've stepped away? <laughs> I don't think your podcast could go long enough to really go down in the weeds on all these things, but I think, I think at the highest 30,000 foot view on that question, I think the main thing is, is how easy it is to lose perspective in life, but also in that job of coaching. And the demands are so great, and it's 24-7, 365. You just cannot, It is. I shouldn't say cannot, but it is very difficult to create space between your work, the job, and um, just getting away from it. And I think if you do not, and mentally even, like you, you know, we all, Every coach goes on vacation. Every coach goes home for the most part to sleep. Um, so I'm talking about even if you do those things, when you come home, you are truly home. Your mind's not still in the office. And I think, like you said, this job is so competitive and so out there in the public's face to scrutinize that it is very, very easy to lose perspective of what really matters and what doesn't and what's important. And so I think that's probably the biggest thing is just that it's like how important perspective is in our life and in jobs and certainly in that job right there. And I think that's the one thing I knew why I stepped away three years ago. I didn't know what was wrong. I knew something was wrong with me. And I would say if there was one thing, it was I had lost perspective on what really was important and why am I doing this job? I think there's a lot of coaches out there right now. I know way more coaches that are miserable, super uncomfortable, not happy than I do, than I know coaches that are joyful and appreciative and grateful and liking their the job that they have. You know, the, the money's overrated in this thing. Um, it just, in terms of creating, you know, any thir any sort of like satisfaction or any of those type of things. And I just don't think people can do their best work until we, you know, be get that perspective about why am I doing this? And, you know, I just, from the outside world, it's like, well, it doesn't matter. This guy's making this much money. Like he just, and um, I don't know. The outside world is the society and the society scoreboard is just so different than what our personal scoreboard is and that we need to focus on to create any sort of, you know, joy, fulfillment, uh, the things that will make us best in our job. Well, so I feel like there's some things that are at odds here, meaning like, I was about to say, ask you this, could you be a great coach knowing what you know? And when I was going to define great as a guy who has a top five program and wins a ton of games and will do the things necessary 
to compete at the highest level in college football like right now, which some of those things might be stomach turning for, a, you know, some people, yeah. you know, and for some people, they might not be. I used to, I've said this line to, to a few people. I was like, I think, and I won't say who the coaches are, but there's a handful of coaches when they look in the mirror, they think they see you. And the point of it is like, I feel like they think they're, they're about the right stuff. And, and first and foremost, developing good people. Like if I said to you, cause you were talking about being successful and you can talk about being great and you can maybe do those things and go nine and three and eight and four. If you're taking, you know, I don't want to say good kids, bad kids, but developing people into better people. And maybe you don't win all your games, right? Maybe you don't, but the great coach quote unquote is the one who is always has top five teams. He may not be doing that. He may not be, you know, like he may just have a lot better players and and maybe doing things in recruiting to get to what you need to get to, especially now is it's it's a very transactional feel to it because it's money and everything, you know, is, is such a part of it. I'm not saying money wasn't a part before, but it's clearly now. So with all those things, knowing what you know, I mean, to be to coach college football at the highest level, do you think you could have thrived in that way knowing that? Or would you just be like, eh, this is this is kind of like I have to be that guy and I don't want to be that guy? I mean, I think that's a great question. And I've asked myself, I've asked other people that I've had that debate. I've had that debate. I've had that discussion with my wife because she's seen it for 30 plus years, what this job can do to people. And I am a little bit more optimistic that... It could be done. First of all, I think if you're going to have a top five team most years inside and out, you got to get a top five job. You know, there's certain jobs that, that just by the history, the location to recruits, to all those type of things, you're going to have to be that are resourced the right way, certainly now with NIL money and all those type of things. Um, so, you know, one thing builds on the other. Um, and so, but the question, you know, so each place I think has kind of a ceiling on it. Like what's the potential of this place? Oh, some places it's like, yeah, you can get to the college football play playoffs. Um, you know, maybe every fourth year, you know, when you kind of develop those guys and you got a good senior class and then you got to kind of go at it again, it'll be different now with the playoffs expanding to 12, but, um, what I think is you have to be more skilled now more than ever before as a coach to thrive in this job. And I use that term thrive loosely with quotes because there's not many guys that are thriving in this thing right now. They're surviving and barely. And so like thriving, I mean, I'd like to get to a point where Hey, I'm pretty good. Like I don't, you know, thriving, you know, this is this is the greatest thing ever. I don't know if you can in this arena that these coaches are into. But I know from being out and looking back, there's certain skills you would have to develop in yourself. And like on a daily basis, work on them. And they're, you know, they're basic things. I mean, it's not rocket science here. Um but because if you don't get yourself right, 
like every morning going into that job, I mean, it is going to eat you up eventually. You know, it might be 20 years. It might be five years. Um, and so I do think this, I think you have to be really skilled, um, you know, as a, just as a human being, like, okay, I have this really demanding job. How, what are the skills that I need to do to stay healthy and fight for perspective to keep perspective? Like, you know, we're not carrying cancer here. This is football. This is a game that we should have like still like and enjoy and, and love. And it is very easy to get off track of those things. I find it's like human nature kind of is working against us at times. So one thing that, you know, as I said at the beginning of this podcast was you have been a great resource. And for me, you know, the one thing that's been kind of, I don't know if I would say it's backwards, but it's been interesting to kind of discover it where all this, you know, 25 plus years around college football coaches, especially you start to pick up a lot of stuff that ends up being actually good parenting advice and good human advice. And so, you know, and I've talked about this a little on the podcast, just coaching youth football and coaching my kid. So one thing that you had told me a couple of years ago when I first started doing it was something you heard from uh, a consultant, Brett Ledbetter, who I had not known anything of, but you're, it was this formula C greater than P greater than R. And it was a very interesting kind of life lessons in there. And I, I think it's very different if you're coaching nine and 10 year olds compared to like coaching, you know, it's a business. If you are, well, you're not, you probably not getting fired as a youth coach. If you don't win enough games, you absolutely are getting fired. If you're coaching 19 year olds and you don't, but where it was fascinating is these things should carry over to life. Right. So like my example this weekend, we have a club soccer tournament and it's down like an hour drive away and our team, and I'm not coaching, I'm just, you know, a dad and our team, the first, like, we know we're playing teams that are better than us because they practice their academy teams practice three or four days a week. Our team is lucky to practice twice a week. And so, you, you know, they're skilled and everything and First game, they end up winning. The second game, just get blown off the field. And it's a long car ride home before we playing, supposedly a better team the next day. And the kids are talking about, well, how they can still win the, get into the finals if, you know, the team they beat in the morning beats somehow beats the team that beat them by like 11 goals or beats the next team. It's just like, this is not re- reality. And I was like, listen, can you just compete harder? Like, just like, don't worry about what the score is. Don't worry about the score. Just play as hard as you can, you know, be aggressive or whatever and see what happens. And I think the lessons in there is just like, don't give up. Like, cause things are, if you're worried so much about the score, when the score doesn't go your way and it starts to go, then all of a sudden it's like, do you give up? Right. And it's, you know, it's very interesting to see how people, whether they're nine years old or fully grown up how they handle what they define as adversity right amen i mean i think you're hitting on (laughs) what sometimes coaches at all levels run right past why are you doing this what is the purpose of you coaching whether it's 10 year olds or 22 year olds or 28 year i think there always has to be a purpose 
I don't think winning the games is purpose. That's the that's the goal. And I love this that you're talking about 10-year-olds figuring out how they can win the next game and get to the championship bracket. You do not need to talk to even five-year-olds about winning or losing. They get it. Like I've been to the, I've been to like when my kids were, you know, six and that, and you go to a basketball game and there's no scoreboard and you're like, what? We're not keeping score. No, no, we're just playing, which is kind of weird. But anyways, so I've watched this before. You don't keep score. Okay. I have no idea who won. After the game, those six-year-olds, they know exactly who won. We beat you by four points, and they're saying it to the other team. Well, good game, but we beat you by eight points. So, and then you go to 10. Like, that's just the world we live in. They're going to always get the winning and losing. So, to me, and I really think about this for coaches at all levels, even college coaches, how do you repurpose the sport experience? And certainly for eight-year-olds, certainly for 10-year-olds, certainly for high, for every level. I think it needs to start down at the level you're talking about. And so when I talk about repurposing the sport experience, like using this experience to develop some like life skills and some habits that are going to carry them through things that are going to happen to them in life, like, yeah, adversity and not going their way. And how do they keep persisting through, you know, that CPR little formula, you know, so the C is character. So when I think about anybody, I'm thinking, okay, I mean, you can go to values and, you know, those type of things, but maybe the young kids, you know, aren't really ready for that. Well, let's just teach them to not blame, complain, or make excuses. Like that's part of the character development. Like guess what we're not doing on this team? And that's what the coaches are really focused on. That, uh, are we complaining here? Are, are we uh, pointing fingers? At each, you know, and then when I think about the process, the P part of things, it's just about hard work regardless of the circumstances. Are you working and trying as hard as you? And then are you being a great teammate? When your guy does something good, are you excited for him? When he does something bad, are you there supporting him? Are you being a great opponent? Like they're, Like who talks about being a great opponent? Like, we do when we're like five, and as soon as we get to six, seven, we, we don't start talking about that. Like, like teach them to be a really good opponent. Like, that's that's part of competitive excellence to me. And then the results, the CPR, the results. So what did we learn today? You know, if we lost, did we lose with, and this might be too big of a word for 10-year-olds. I don't know. You could tell me. Did we lose with honor? Did we win? with humility. Like to me, those are the things. And I mean, I think about coaching college football. I wanted to repurpose the sport experience. I get our, I'm not going to be here long if we don't win enough games. You don't have to tell me or like, that's the focus of every minute of our existence. But I want to repurpose the sport experience to try to teach these elite life skills and what great values and habits look like and what championship teamwork looks like. Like championship team, like being a great teammate is a life skill. The most successful people that I know in life are really, really good teammates. Even the best leaders I know. 
And so why not teach this stuff when they're 10, when they're in high school, when they're in college? I think if you get this stuff right, you're going to win more games regardless of the level you're at. The the tricky part, one thing that we've seen, and it's like, you know, every kid is different and they're into different things or whatever. So like our kid, I would say he likes soccer, loves football. The other stuff, like he wants to, you know, he I'll have to throw passes. It could be a tennis ball. It could be a football, whatever it is. He is very just, you know, if I, I'll throw it till my arm gets tired because that's what he wants, right? My hand gets tired or whatever from it. And the one thing I've said to him is like, look, you're catching these touchdowns in this other league because you do all this work or whatever. Yeah. So like, think about that. If this extra stuff or whatever the work is, that needs to carry over to the school, right? Like that needs to carry over to the schoolwork because like it's not happening. I'm not saying it's not happening on its own, but it's like it's like a concerted effort, whether you think you're you're doing extra or not. It's like these these things carry over like the work, the work helps. And if you do the work, whether it's extra work, whether you think it's extra work or whatever it is, like that needs, like these things are all applicable. And so, you know, just kind of observing it is really interesting because I feel like, and this happens, I know with all the, a lot of the, myself included and all the parents I know is you're kind of looking at, at your kid, whatever age they are is like, okay, this is your you're kind of looking at them as like, it's almost like defining moments or this is what this person was at this age. And it's like, you know, people have bad days. People have good days. People, yeah. you know, they're still growing and still developing. And I, you know, transitioning to something else I'm going to say is like, like a lot of times in college sports, I think people see somebody and like, oh, they're this. And it's like, they don't give them the benefit of the doubt that they could develop into something like, you know, the guy I voted first for the Heisman Trophy, Michael Penix Jr., I think is a much different quarterback than he was when he was in the Big Ten. Like, he has continued to evolve and continue to develop. And our old friend Leach had a great life lesson somewhere in all his, you know, crazy story of like, I'm not going to let what I was like coming out of Cody, Wyoming at whatever, 17 years old, and what people thought of me being the way I'm defined. And I think that to me more than anything else with Mike's story really resonated. And I'm not, you know, I think the evolution of where people get to, especially as college athletes. And sometimes, sometimes you didn't get shown in the best light. That doesn't mean that's who you are. That may be who you were, you know? So as a coach, how did you approach the development side of, you know, like not having somebody defined by their worst moments or what they were at 18 or 19. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, you know, again, one of the things maybe stepping away that you lose perspective of that I lost perspective of, like you're in the people business, but, you know, we want to go to this, you know, little formulas. Like to me, the number one thing, and, and you just talked about like Michael Penix, a much different player a much different player now than he was at Indiana. Well, absolutely. I mean, he was a young guy going, I mean, it is hard being a quarterback at that age in that type of league. And then he's got these injuries that he has to fight through. But like what I see is, is, you know, all this adversity he's gone through. He's, 
He's kept persisting, kept working at it. And the confidence level is so different. You know, confidence is cash in life. Think about anything that you've done. Like some people are really good with finances and money. And if they have a setback with their money in the market or a business, they're not going to sweat that. You know, they're going to adjust and adapt and away they go. <clears throat> Maybe you or me, it's going to be, oh my gosh, I'm not trying anything like that again. I'm not losing that money again. Well, it's the same in, you know, anything in life, but certainly in sports. Like I've learned this, like the confident teams, they can overcome things. Oh, we dropped the ball. Oh, we had a big setback. The teams that aren't quite, it's like, oh my gosh, we're never going to overconfident. So I've always been on this thing. One of the things that's so important for us as coaches is to help develop confidence in their game. But the longer I've done this, that to me is the second most important skill that we can help develop in these people and our, and, and our kids. It's really self-esteem. It's confidence in themselves, like that they feel good about themselves. So every coach, like we get so caught up in the moment and we love these kids when they make great plays. And then when they don't make great plays, we don't love them quite as much. That's just the nature of this transaction. But the ones that really are focused on this right stuff, they are always, and we need to teach our kids this, it is always person greater than player. It Like those are, like I, I've heard some, I've said this to my team, you know, coaching is what I do. It's not who I am. That is a bunch of garbage for 98% of the people out there. Coaching is who they are. And when they coach well, they're a really good person. And when they coach bad, they're a really bad person. That has mo that's how most of us take this. And players are no different. Unless they're highly evolved and really like self-adjusted and they understand this thing. Hey, if I play great, awesome. That was fun. That was, it doesn't make me any better of a person. And when I have a tough day outing, I'm not a bad person. But to, I think that has to be taught. And that needs to be like reinforced from the 10-year-old, the 8-year-old level all the way through and super reinforced in the college level. I will tell you this. I had a conversation with, I think it was about three of the top college quarterbacks last year. And just listening to their stories. And every one of them said at one point, they weren't sure if they were going to make it. They thought they might quit the sport in college. And I, I just, I just, I just shook my head because I know that I've been around so many players that have done unbelievable things in college, but I know their journey and I know what goes through their heads. It's like, it, we all have that thing. Is this really worth it? Like we put so much importance and so much of our identity is tied into this. Is it really worth it? Here's three of the best college quarterbacks in the country and all three of them at one time had thought about walking away. Now they've persisted through some things and, you know, got through all those hard things. But I'm like, oh my gosh, every kid in America needs to hear this. Do you think some of your peers, maybe even back in the day of like what football coaches, maybe how they were wired, would have heard that story and feel like, ooh, that's weakness. That's a, even by verbalizing it, that's a, that's something that was taboo. 100%. I think there's a lot of coaches out there and say, you know, toughen up, let's go. We got to grind through things. And 
you know, it's all semantics and it's all like on a scale. I think the thing is, I remember this with Boise. We had a player there. Like I thought his career, you know, it was back in the day now, couldn't have been any better. He redshirted his freshman year and was a really good player. And we knew he was going to be a good player. He then became a four-year starter and was an all-league player. And then went into the NFL and played for a handful of years and played on a Super Bowl team. But I remember talking to him like in his senior year, and he's one of the better players in the league. And he's going, God, man, this thing is hard. I don't know. And and I, I just remember thinking, here's a guy that it went as good as it could possibly go. And he's questioning like, I didn't think it was going to be this hard. I, I don't know if it was worth all this hard work. And so I think we all have those doubts. You know, it, it, I think that's maybe where we have evolved a little bit. It, it's okay to have those doubts. Like that's human nature to go, is this thing worth it? You know, can I get through this? Rather than say, put the blinders on, you can do this, let's go. You know, I, I think we've evolved a little bit through there, but you accomplish anything great in life. There's going to be so much questions and doubts. And can I do this? And I'm witnessing this with the top players in college football. And I've had the same conversation with NBA coaches and with NFL coaches and some of their star players. They're not nearly as confident as they come across that, you know, you know, all that confidence and swag you see on the, that's not what it really looks like behind closed doors. And I think that's important for like kids and all of us going through hard things. There's going to be a lot of, you know, a lot of second guess and a lot of doubt, but the, the question, the, the, the issue is, can I persevere and get through it? That's like, and not to go on a tangent on which we've gone on tangents here, but like in left field on this, like that's one of my issues with the transfer portal. And I'm not sure how to wrap my mind around this because when things get hard and they don't go quite your way, is that the best answer just to change environments? Sometimes I get it. Sometimes it might, that might be what you need. It is time. I mean, look, the top three Heisman vote getters, all portal guys transferred. Yeah. All worked out great for them, seemingly. 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 And, and it might have. And so, but like, I also know back in the day, how many kids would have left us early on because it wasn't quite working out how they thought it was. I would tell every kid that we recruit, listen, all these uniform photo shoots, all coming out and seeing our stadium, all the bells and whistles of this recruiting trip. This is fantasy land and Disneyland. This is not how it is when you get here. This is going to be the hardest thing that you've ever done. And guess what else? It's actually not going to turn out exactly like you think it is. Now, that doesn't mean that that can't still be the best thing that you've ever done in your life at the end of the day. But it's just going to be different because we have these visions like I am going to go win the Heisman Trophy and I am going to. I don't have visions of struggling my freshman, my sophomore year, then transferring and then going, you know, like who wants that? And so it's, it is going to turn out different. It is going to be harder and different than you think, but it doesn't mean that it can't turn out like as a really, really cool thing. And so, yeah. So sh should we transfer? Is that, is that the best thing? Like I said, I mean, I don't know, but I know most of the time, a lot of the time, let's just say half the time, that's not the answer.
Let's hang in there and persevere through some things, develop a little more skill. Uh, yeah, maybe this guy in front of you is a little bit of right right now, but he might not be down the road and, you know, all those things. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not preach you and your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's funny, the, um, there's an offensive line coach in the Pac-12, or what was the Pac-12, I guess. And I remember we talked once about their uh, development for offensive linemen. And he had a guy who was 6'5", 240 out of high school. They took him. He ended up being a first-round pick. And it's a, you know, it's a great story. Another guy hasn't been like a, a pro bowl or an all-pro, but he was a first-round pick. And, and I remember he said to me, he goes, you know, you remember you being like, you as a sports writer or as a media person, you remember the one that hits. You don't, what you don't write about are the other four guys who are similar developmental, who either couldn't gain the weight, didn't work hard enough when, or when they gained the weight, they got really slow or just, you know, it was like, he goes, you guys don't, and he didn't use this analogy, but it's a little like the duck under the water. You don't see all the other stuff that's going on. So the numbers probably, you know, the, yeah, it's an awesome story for for J- for Daniels and for Knicks and for Penix, but there's a bunch of other stories that are other way, right? Yeah. But I want to ask you this off of you've had a close view of what's going on at your old school, and for most people, I think if if Kalen old DeBoer, school being old school being Washington, yeah. So if they're in the playoff, obviously. If if Kalen DeBoer walked into a room full of college football diehard fans without any like UW golf shirt on or something, I don't think they would know who he is. I don't think they would recognize him. So he is still, you know, he he is was wildly successful as an NAIA coach, did a really good job as a Big Ten coordinator, and then did well at Fresno. And now he's he has just done remarkable in two years. What do you think makes him such a good football coach? My my first thing that I would hope for Kalen, which I know is wishful thinking, like you said, that he can walk into a lot of rooms right now without UW gear on and people don't know who he is. That would be my first wish. 
that from eight years from now, he can walk in the room about UW gear and people really didn't know who he is. And I say that because it's just like, it's such a corrupting process when, when all this, when this arena that he's in and your whole, like I talked about when we started, like to be able to create space from your job to just not be Kalen DeBoer, the coach, 24 7 365 into every room he goes into that is exhausting and then you talk about your identity becoming it's not you know coaching's not who i am it's what i do when everywhere you go that's the coach it almost is like melding like even though we're trying to push back and not become that one thing so that's my first hope for Kalen, which it, like I said, is wishful thinking. I mean, when you win, like, and do the things that he's done, you know, what's coming. But I think the thing that's K- about Kalen is just, and I just can't like, this is going to seem so cheesy and like understated. She's just a really good dude. Like that's really what he is. He is, he's got so much humility to him. And I don't mean that like, like he, as much as he's won or he's been, he doesn't come across like he's really won a lot. He's just a normal person. He's into other people. When he first got the job at UW, about three months after he got it, we went out to lunch and we sat there for about two and a half hours. And I would, my, I started getting nervous for him. I'm like, Kaylin, you need to go. Like, I know how many things you have right now. Oh, no, I'm good, you know? And so that's how he is. Like, he has time for people. He wants to talk to people. He's not thinking about the next thing. Or if he is, he's still, like, present. And so I think that's, like, such a gift right now that I hope he doesn't lose, you know, to be present where his feet always are. So that's the first thing I think about. The second thing is, and it kind of just goes to a lot of like he's how he's wired anyways, but I always think about this, my three value buzzwords that when I think about myself or I see others that are leaders when they're at their best, it's being strong, it's being calm, and it's being fluid when the adversity hits. And Usually when you're a college football coach, that's like every day. There's some sort of adversity going on. And Kalen is just, he's usually like, he's not going to like, when I say strong, he's strong in his convictions and knows what he wants to do. And he's not going to start grabbing straws. When I say calm, like he's poised, you know, so-and-so just got hurt. So-and-so is going to transfer. So-and-so is going to do whatever. You know, I know it bothers him, but it's not the end of the world and fluid. Like, how do we keep adjusting and adapting? And and then so those are the things that jump out to me. Yes, he's a really good offensive football mind. Yeah, he's a good organizer to run. But like that's lower on the totem pole of what makes him special, in my opinion. This like when you're talking about calm and being fluid. So just from, you know, I'm working on a story about talking to, to coaches who played them. And one of the things that has come up a lot is this team keeps grinding, keeps grinding, and they know how to win. They find ways to win. And if you look at them, it's an experienced team. There are, I think, 8-0 and in games decided by 10 points or less. It's like, it's, people will sometimes think that, like math people will think that's fluky. It's almost like turnovers. Yeah. That sooner or later, 
you know, the fumbles aren't going to bounce to you or whatever. It's going to bounce the wrong way or these things. Do you think that, like, how much of that is a skill of the demeanor of the head coach and the vibe around them of how people respond in pressure? Yeah, I think there's a lot of correlation there because when I think about that strong, you know, how Kalen is and he doesn't overreact and I know how he talks to the team and, I th- in all these tight games that UW has gone through, like you see that in them. They have a great confidence about them, that word confidence again, that we've been in these tight games. We've been behind. We can do this. And they believe that. And so I do think there's, you know, a direct correlation between those two things. You know, they haven't lost any games, but I, I know what would happen if they did. And they will lose games eventually. There's not going to be an overreaction. There's not going to be, you know, I think the main thing, and I think it's so good for for UW and how Kalen is, like there's a tendency now, you know, to be striving for that perfection. They're perfect right now. They haven't lost a game. And so now it's like, you know, we can't lose it. Like if you're playing not to lose, you're going to lose. You got to play to just win. You, you, you don't win. Like there's a difference between playing not to lose and playing to win the game, like taking chances, cutting it loose. And, hey, at the end of the day, if we could make the plays, I can tip my hat to that, to that team. That's easy for me and you to sit here and talk about this. It's another thing when you're in the arena and the pressure's on, but I think it starts at the top. They take shots, though. It's like Penix's numbers. It's like he's throwing it downfield. I think it must take a certain kind of confidence in a coach to not play conservative and not think, oh man, he's putting this ball in harm's way. And there have been, you know, I remember last year there would be a pick six here or there and there'd be a throw that you'd be like, oof, that, you know, didn't, didn't, um, that blew up in their face, but it just seems like that's not how he's wired as a coach. And, and he needs to stay that way. And I'm telling you, it is hard to stay that way. I know that, you know, Back in the days of Boise State, it was a lot easier to cut it loose, take chances, trick plays, all this kind of stuff. And then you get here to Washington when it's not all going exactly like it did over there. And then everyone's breathing on you. Well, that was a stupid call. Why would you try that? Well, all trick plays are stupid calls if they don't work. But when they work, they're pretty fun, right? I mean, I, th- I think about Kalen in that Washington State game. Fourth and one, game on the line. End around reverse to Roma Dunze. Huh? That's a gambling man right there. That's cutting it loose. That's playing to win, not to lose. Now, if he doesn't get that, what's everybody going to say about it? We already know what they're going to say about it. Does it affect him down the road to not maybe not make that call again? Because eventually he's going to make a call like that's going to cost him. But that doesn't matter. You shouldn't change that mentality. But the forces of the arena that he's in is going to be breathing on him. And they're going to like, the pressure is going to be like, it's a lot easier to play a conservative and punt that ball away. And so my hope for, you know, for Kalen and those guys is they never lose that mentality. Never, no matter what happens. Notice this. So your last year was 2019. So your last full recruiting class was pretty loaded. So Puka Nakua, I think he's doing pretty good in the NFL. He's he was in that. <laughs> He's kind of uh, good. Yeah, Layatu Latu, who turned out to be the best probably defense yeah. player in college football, so in that class. Trent McDuffie, if I'm not mistaken. He's kind of good. Yeah, so then there's a bunch of other guys, though. Maybe the best offensive lineman in the Pac-12, number 55, is now was in right. that class, right? He was Don't your – Yeah, uh, you had Asa Turner, 
played a lot. Braylon Trice, arguably the best defensive player on the defense. Um, you're, How about not, our walk-on, Edifon Ulufo Shield, the linebacker that's the, the heart and soul of that defense? Walk-on. Yeah, you beat Robert Morris to get him. I, I, I <laughs> exactly. So I met him. I was like, wait a minute. He went to Bishop Gorman. They had, I forgot what his name, um, the five-star who went to USC and then Ohio State was like, so people are obviously going to Gorman. I was like, why did so many people on him, miss on him? Um, and then it was funny because one of your former coaches told me, he was like, I used to have race that kid after a while to get into work sooner. He'd be there at 5.30. All true. All uh, true. And there's a few other guys there. You're, they're starting a linebacker who's been like an all pack 12 linebacker, Alfonso, um, number 11. Pitala. Yeah. So knowing what you had in that class, I don't want to say is it bittersweet because obviously some of those guys would have still gone to the NFL, I would imagine. And Latu's case, you know, was unique. But to see this now, to see what the, a lot of these guys have been on because they were there, you know, through the pandemic. Jimmy Lake had a rough end of it, you know, and, and then all of a sudden just to now be a playoff team, an undefeated team. What is that like to look at those kids that you knew and see what has become? Um, yeah. A lot of pride. Like you felt so good about recruiting these kids because one, they were pretty darn good players, but felt even better about them as people. And I know that sounds, that's the whole quote, OKG thing, that really we took a lot of heat on that whole thing. I stopped talking about it out publicly because some schools were trying to use that against us. They they didn't, like, you know, know what it was. Even the fans and recruiters say, you can't win with OKGs. I'm like, what are you talking about? What is an OKG? You don't know what an OKG is. Like, to me, it's a really good player, first and foremost. And if you're not that, stop right there. You're not an OKG. But then it's like a really good dude on top of that, that like, I just had this philosophy. If we're going to go to, if I'm going down and we're not winning, I'm going down with good dudes around me that I'd like to coach. And so that's what's so satisfying about this. You could see the, the talent that they had, but see, it's not about talent. It's about skill, developing skill. And so to me, skill is talent just the God-given abilities, bigger, faster, stronger, all these type of things, plus character. Now, I think about character as performance character and relational character. So performance character, are they disciplined? Are they passionate? Are they, you know, mentally tough? You know, we could have a list of 15 things there on this performance character that they just are in this thing for the right reasons. And then on the, you know, the relational character, are they good? Do they care about their teammates? Do they care about other people? Are they compassionate? You know, are they, um, you know, again, another list of 15 things. Are they trustworthy? Like that was one of my favorite words when we'd be recruiting and asking coaches. And I would just say, do you trust this guy? Now, if you asked me that, I was going to like, I could separate that question like, what are we talking about here? On the field, off the field, ever? I don't think I had a coach ever say like, well, what are you talking about? When I'd say, do you trust this kid? That would always be my last question. I knew within five seconds whether they were like all about this guy. Oh, coach, I want this kid to marry my daughter. Oh, coach, this this is when we go somewhere, I want him to house sit for 
or be like, well, uh, you know, uh, yeah, you know, he's come along what I just thought. Was, and so those are the kids like, you know, you try to like, I'd always say this, like you got to stack the deck like this thing's so hard that, you know, stack the deck a little bit in your favor of not only kids that show talent, but they also have these character traits that you really are like wanting to. And then it it can make coaching a lot more enjoyable and fun because not everybody's going to fit your style and your system and those type of things, but it's really tricky, right? Because we're talking about 17, 18, 16 year olds at times we're recruiting these guys. And so these guys are going to develop and change and grow. So you're trying not to like, I mean, there's really an art to it, like to recruit, you know, for, for us, it was, it just wasn't all about, and you know this, it wasn't about the stars. It was not. I mean, he might have a lot of stars, but he might have a lot of stars and we're not going that direction. How hard is it going to be for you to watch the game, this particular one between Washington? You know all these, you know, most of these kids, you know what they look like when they were in high school, you know a lot of their families. And then the other side, you have your old defensive coordinator, you have coaches there who are now, you know, wearing burnt orange. And I don't want, I mean, are you conflicted? Are you, are you able to di- just disconnect from this and just watch the game as a, as just a football fan? Like what, what will that be like? Yeah, that's a strange one. You're, you're right. I think at one time, I don't know if they're all there, but I think there were seven guys on coach Sark's staff there that at one time were with us at Washington from analysts, strength coaches, that kind of stuff. So they're, I don't know if they're, I think one or two might've gotten other jobs and that kind of stuff, but there, there's a handful and like Pete Kukowski and Jeff Choate and, I mean, we've been through a lot of things there. And um, so that is conflicting because I really want those guys to, I know how important this is to them. And and it's important to me that those guys do well. Um, but I think, so yeah, it is conflicting because you want them to do well. But at the end of the day, I mean, my loyalties, I feel like I never really left UW, even though I did leave with all the connections to all those kids, you know, to the connections of the coaches that, uh, shoot, there's a couple of guys on Kalen's staff that played for us at Boise state. So there's some good ties in there as well. And, you know, my relationship with Kalen, I feel like, you know, I didn't know him before he came to UW, but I feel like I've known him for 15 years and, um, all the people that we've crossed over in our past. So, you know, it is, there is some, there is some inner conflict there, but at the end of the day, um, you know, it's about the dogs. Okay. Uh, is that who you're picking to win the whole playoff with your head? Oh, with my head. With your oh, head. Two things. Who, are you, who are you picking to win these two games? And so check games? this out. I think this is the thing that I love about these playoffs. I've, I'm going to ramble here. I apologize. Like I always do. Okay. I love these matchups because I think really any one of these teams have a shot to win it. You know, I think the last couple of years, Georgia was so dominant. When we got into the playoffs, we knew we were going to have to play like perfect football to get things done. Um, I can, you can make a case for each one of these teams, you know, uh, really making it. And so I love the matchups. But I don't think this is the right matchups for college football. Florida State, in my opinion, should be in this thing. So don't get me started on that. But they're not there. Mike Norvell, God bless you. I feel for you and your guys. Like things are earned on the field and they earned it. 
And so, but anyways, that's for another day. Um, my heart, um, I really think like you dog could go out and win this. They got as good a shot as anyone. My head all along, I have kind of been on this Michigan train. Mm. I have just really liked Michigan from the start of the season. And I, and I don't feel any different right now. Like I think if I'm saying, okay, if I had a, if I'm a betting man, which I'm not, uh, I, you know, I'd say Michigan. I mean, these guys, they got a lot of pro players on that roster, a lot. They have been through so much adversity. They don't have their coach for the first three games. They don't have their coach for the last three games. It doesn't matter. These guys have a great identity. Now, I do think this, they're going to be matched up against some really, really good defenses, and they're going to have to throw the ball more. We know they're going to run to win. It's going to be about Blake Corum and that offensive line. Their identity is so beautiful to watch because they know who they are. But I do think that J.J. McCarthy is going to have to be a big factor. They're going to have to make him a factor. And if they do that, you know, I would say I would maybe edge to Michigan on this thing at this point right now. This is the last thing before, because I, I feel like I've kept you too long. But I did want to ask this. One of the guys who knows you, and this is a, when I say knows you, it's like a, a football coach had said, I guess you had been down to Austin at some point and kind of were like, keep an eye on Texas. And there was something you would, he said you had seen that he, and this person interpreted it was, it was kind of the bond between the players and, and Sark and the coaching staff. You kind of were able to see something, maybe not just the talent of, of a cohesiveness that caught your eye. Is that accurate or fair to say? Um, I don't know what I think about this. I've always thought, I, I I love the job that Steve Sarkeesian's done. I love the developmental process. You talk about going through hard things, what Steve Sarkeesian's been through and where he is right now. My hat's off to him. Um, like our styles had always been so different in terms of leadership and those type of things. But I said this before, I, I probably wouldn't come to Washington if it wasn't what Steve did at Washington to get this thing back into the ballpark, right? And then he goes down to SD and, you know, has a, a tough road, personal road, you know, some um, hurdles to get over there and does it and learns and grows. And just like where he's got that program now, I think we all know he was always a really good play caller and X and O football coach. What I see now, boy, he's turned into a heck of a leader. I mean, he knows how to like a modern coach, you know, you talk about all the crazy stuff that's going on with transfer portal and NIL and all these things. And if you're not willing to embrace that and go after that and use that to your advantage, then you shouldn't be in this game right now. But I still think it does come down to the basics of leadership and culture and teamwork and all those corny things that we love to talk about that I think Steve Sarkeesian is really taking the next step in terms of those type of things in, in, in upping his game. So my hat's off to him, man. Job well done. Will you be watching the, uh, any of the games in person? So I went down to the Oregon Washington game. First college football I've seen in person in 30 plus years. <laughs> right. I mean, I've always, that, that I wasn't coaching it. Um, wow. Was that wild? That was different, a different experience. 
and I did like it. Um, the energy and the passion and being able to be part of that and not worried about the next calls. And so that was cool. Uh, not going down um, to the Sugar Bowl. I'm going to watch that one from afar and we'll kind of go from there. All right. All right. As always, I um, like I, I wasn't joking when I said this. You are my favorite coworker because I feel like I've learned from you an incredible amount and not just about the game, but like the stuff that carries over. I mean, it's pretty remarkable how much stuff that I we've talked about that has come up in our house. Um, so it's very, it's very cool to get that as a reason. Yeah. And, and you gave us what turned out to be the game winning play in that it was fun. Uh, one day it was like, I had, um, I had the the kid who was our quarterback of our team and the guy I coach with came in and afterwards we talked about something because there's one play we had that was just wearing people out. And I was like, well, we need a little wrinkle off this. (laughs) <laughs> it's funny. I have the, I have the version of like the chair play that you had started to sketch up, and I was like, okay, how can we tweak this a little bit? Uh, <laughs> it's quite a. It was, uh, it was awesome. So, oh my gosh, designing plays for you and your ten-year-old football team. I love it. Doesn't get any better than that. Well, the thing that's so cool is, you know, I think I have a passion. I have a passion for a couple things. One is a great set of parents that are in the sporting world, I think that's a really hard job. You know, we love our kids so much and we get so caught up in their thing and it can be playing time and winning and losing and all those things that we really lose sight of, you know, how, how are we repurposing this? Like, how can we use this experience he's going through to help him? And some of these parents that don't get so caught up in the winning and losing, and it's all about Johnny winning the trophies and all that, that's inspiring to me. I mean, I came across some just unbelievable parents in my time recruiting and and few and far between. But when I did, man, that was inspiring. And then the second thing is, is a really great youth coach that has this thing figured out, that is treating the kids the right way, that is emphasizing the right things other than winning. The kids already got that. They already understand winning and losing. And so that's why I'm excited that you're actually coaching your son and you know, his friends and all those type of things, because the game, the game needs more coaches that understand it and what's important like you do. I appreciate that. I do. Um, well, hopefully I will see you uh, before too long. So I know, uh, I know you probably miss being in the makeup chair and doing all the things. <laughs> <you're doing. laughs> so. All right, Bruce, have all a right. great holiday. You too.